get your attention. <laughs> I'm going to have to really talk low with it. <laughs> All right, this is uh, our first, first in a uh, series in the book of James. We're going to have eight Mondays in a row of James. Uh, there's five chapters in James, so uh, uh, some of the you know, we're going to only do half a chapter of chapter one today, uh, but we'll we'll do eight, uh, and we'll finish James up in the in those eight uh, lessons. Uh, just a way of information: if you haven't been here before, or even if you have and have a bad memory, that would be everybody. Uh, if you give me your email address. I have it, obviously, if you've been getting my emails. But if you haven't, then I send out study questions in advance. The week before, you'll get study questions on the next lesson. And I write about a three-page uh, lesson on the actual uh, material that we're going to study. So you'll get that in advance as well. So if you want the study questions and the lesson uh, and you'll need to give me your email and uh, make sure you print it out real good, you know, because I can't read Sanskrit. You'd be surprised how many people give me their email and I go, there's no way I can read that. <laughs> so, uh, obviously we're serving lunch uh, every uh, week and uh, you just pay for it right back there. And, uh, We'll try to lead you through this study of the book of James. It's, it's a very uh, interesting book. And, uh, you know, the main topic today is the, our response to trouble and trials and tribulations. And I can't think of anybody that's had more than Tom Hanks in the movie The Money Pit. Anybody else ever remodeled a house? <laughs> Money pit. Yeah. It's back in the 80s, so that goes way back. <laughs> the Money Pit. All right. So the book of James, if you have your Bible, your electronic device, turn with me to the book of James. It's obviously in the New Testament, pretty far to the right in the New Testament. And James is the half-brother of Jesus. In other words, I'm sure you are thinking about how could that be. Uh, James had the same mother as Jesus did uh, because Jesus' father is God. The Holy Spirit came upon her when she was a virgin. So James is the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, he actually was not even a believer. We have several texts in the New Testament in uh, Mark uh, chapter 3 and John chapter 7 that say uh, Jesus' brothers were not believing in him during his ministry. But they came to believe in him after the resurrection. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrected Christ appeared to his brother James. 
And so James probably uh, was converted at that time, and he eventually became the head elder of the church in Jerusalem. So he was the, the head guy. He was like the, the bishop or the head minister uh, in this large church in Jerusalem. If you remember the history of the church, the original church was in Jerusalem and was all Jewish. And that was the case for about 12 years at least. Uh, for 12 years, uh, most of the people in the church were Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, during the uh, first day of the church, which is the day of Pentecost, you can find in Acts chapter 2, uh, there was a lot of Jews from around the Mediterranean who were in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Peter went out and gave his first sermon and about 3,000 believed. And a lot of those people went back home and started small churches and there were small movements all around the Mediterranean world. But the main church and the main amount of work that was going on by the, uh, uh, the disciples of Christ, you know, the apostles, was going on in Jerusalem. Uh, and so James was the head guy there. So he was a really big deal. And got, got an uh, outline. I uh, hope you can see it. Uh, but basically, uh, you can see James is the, is the uh, author of this. Why did he write it? What was the occasion? Jewish Christians were scattered because of persecution. The pressure was causing them to demonstrate a lack of faith. So you can find that in Acts, the end of Acts chapter, uh, beginning of Acts chapter 8, actually it's Acts chapter 8 verse 1, tells us that uh, after a number of years of fairly peaceful existence in Jerusalem, so many Jews were coming to Christ that a persecution against the church and against Christians uh, was developing. And you had Stephen as the first martyr at the end of chapter 7. And in chapter 8, the major persecution, and they were arresting uh, all Christians and uh, actually executing a bunch of them. And so they fled out of Jerusalem into all the surrounding areas of Judea and even up into Samaria. And so James is writing this letter to those Jewish Christians who have fled out of the church in Jerusalem and are in the surrounding villages and towns and what have you. Uh, and the reason that uh, they needed a good letter from James, and it's really a letter of admonishment, is because the pressure on them, the persecution on them, was causing them to not act like they were, they were kind of like closet Christians, right? They were like, you know, when they're at home with their family or something, they're Christians, but when they got out, they said, well, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? And you would have never known from their actions and what they said that they were Christians. And so he was writing to them the purpose statement to encourage and exhort Christians to a life of maturity through faith. It's, what it is, the whole book is a call to applied Christianity. Live like who you say you are. Your Savior is Christ. Uh, he's your model. He's your perfect example. Live like Him. Uh, and so he is writing this letter to them to get what you might call faith in action. Faith manifested through their lifestyle. Uh, and in today's, in chapter 1, he's going to talk about three tests of faith. And the first one is trials, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, and then next week, temptations. 
and then thirdly, their, their response to the Word of God. Uh, and so when you're not acting, you can see that. Uh, when, you, when you're not, the theme, by the way, uh, is faith in action, as we said. And when you're not acting according to what your faith is, uh, I would call that a disconnect. And what do I mean by that? Well, you look that up in the dictionary, it says disconnect to break the connection of two or more things, to become detached or withdrawn, to uncouple yourself. And so uh, what am I talking about? Well, a few examples. When I was at Dallas Seminary, <laughs> I got to be friends with this guy who was in the doctoral program. And when you uh, signed up, when you signed your application to go to Dallas Seminary, they make you promise, you pledge, that you will not drink alcohol while you're there. They're not against alcohol at all. But they think a student there uh, should be a good witness, and there's so many people in the world that doesn't, don't think you should drink, that just while you're there, you agree not to drink any alcohol. And so I signed that, and, and I didn't drink any alcohol, at least not very much. <laughs> But while I was there, this doctoral student and I went to lunch off campus, and uh, we were having lunch, and he orders a uh, cocktail at lunch. And I go, well, I said, uh, did you not take the pledge at school? And he says, yeah, if you read that pledge, it said that we agree not to drink any alcohol while we're at school. <laughs> he said, I never drink in class. That is a disconnect. <laughs> he has disconnected himself from the truth or what he actually believes or what he pledged to do. It's a disconnect between faith and action. Another one, about 15 years ago in a, a Bible church that we used to go to, there was a, oh, excuse me, uh, this one, this example has to do with a little old lady that was in this church. When we got to this church about 15 years ago, uh, there was a little old godly woman, everybody loved her, who was uh, in this church, and her job was to count the money after every Sunday's offering. She would count the money, and she'd give accounting of it and everything. But uh, suddenly they said, you know, they're just amazing. There's really not that much cash. People just don't give cash anymore. <laughs> and somebody said, you know, we ought to watch that and see. And so they, they watched it, and they found out uh, she was... Uh, Keeping the cash. The little old lady. The little old godly Christian woman. Right? Well, that's a disconnect. She said she was a Christian and you could trust her, but you couldn't. That's a disconnect between her faith and the action. Uh, and then another one at our Bible church before that, uh, the, the most popular Bible teacher there uh, was a guy. Everybody loved the guy. We were in his class, uh, and he began doing counseling. Well, he was not supposed to be doing counseling uh, with women alone, but he did. And you probably already guessed that he over-counseled. <laughs> Repeatedly. And so they had to let him go. That's a disconnect between faith and action. Who he said he was versus what he actually did. 
Another time in my Wednesday Bible study a long time ago, uh, I had a guy come up and say, you know, I owe this guy money, and he's just been harassing me for this money for a long time, and I wish you'd talk to him, another guy in the Bible study, you know, because he said it's kind of uncomfortable. You know, I come to the Bible study, and that guy's there, and he talks to me afterwards like, where's my money? So I said, well, I'll talk to him and find out. Well, it turns out that this guy who initially came to me and, you know, saying the other guy was wrong, he's owed him the money a long time. His daughter goes to... Uh, uh, Hockaday and his son goes to St. Mark's. He drives a Mercedes Benz, lives in Howland Park. And I said, it's your business whether you pay him off or not. But, pal, to get me involved in a deal like that, I do not appreciate it. And I've got a solution to your problem. Pay the money. That's a disconnect between faith and action. See? And that's what James is all about. Uh, talk, think about the Bible story. Almost every Bible story uh, has this in it. How about David and Bathsheba? One of the greatest guys, one of the finest men, the finest leaders, greatest believer, David. David. God even said about him in uh, 1 Samuel 13, he has a heart for God. He's a man after God's own heart. The greatest king Israel ever had. And he walks up on the top of his castle or his palace and looks down into the neighbor's yard and sees Bathsheba bathing. I must have her. <laughs> Next thing you know, adultery. Then he's got to cover it up by killing her husband. That is a disconnect between faith and action. You have seen a million instances of this, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. Uh, everybody has some sort of disconnect in their past. And that's why James uh, found it necessary to write this letter to these Hebrew Christians who were scattered uh, around in the area. And it's like an encyclical letter. He probably made a whole bunch of copies and sent it to all the different little places that all these people had fled to uh, from the persecution. So, uh, w when you think about uh, what was going on, Acts chapter 8, uh, we read verse 1, On that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they, they were, all the believers in the church, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And they began ravaging the church. So intense persecution uh, upon them, was their immediate problem uh, that they had to overcome. So in the book of James, his audience is having the same disconnect as we've been talking about between their faith and the way they live. They're not acting like they're actually Christians. Uh, therefore, James' audience had lost their jobs, uh, they had uh, lost their families. You know, when they became Christians, a lot of the families, a lot of the uh, parents said, if you become a Christian and give up our religion, you're no longer in this family. That was commonplace back then. And they would even lose their jobs. And so they were financially strapped, and they lost their homes, their families, and everything. So it's not like this is some small or easy deal. This is a tough deal. They had a really, really tough deal. The religious police, I mean, they literally... Uh, they didn't have a separation between church and state in Jerusalem. 
the church was the state. Religious law was the law. And they literally had a police force to enforce religious law. And so the religious police were literally after them. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who you know wrote half the New Testament, he was one of those religious policemen. He actually got converted on the road to Damascus on his way to arrest some people there in Damascus. Uh, and so they had to live uh, under fear of being arrested as well as all the other problems that they had for being a Christian. So it's in that context, that atmosphere, in which James wrote this letter about 45 A.D. It's the first letter that was written in the New Testament. First letter that was written. And of course, a lot of people say, well, if Jesus died like in 30 or 33, uh, we're not sure which one of those, uh, and resurrected went to heaven, why did it take him so long to write the New Testament? Well, you don't understand, obviously, that the New Testament, they just didn't sit down and write it. The New Testament are letters to the churches. They're letters to the churches. The whole New Testament are letters to the churches, and therefore uh, there had to be a church to write the letters. And so it took them about 20 years to plant all those churches after Christ uh, was resurrected and ascended to heaven. Uh, it took about 20 years to plant all those churches, and so the letters were written in the 50s and 60s. This was the first one written probably about 45, between 45 and 47 A.D., right? Uh, and so it's uh, from the church in Jerusalem to the Jews who were in that area. Um, and, you know, they had all these problems, and they're good Christian people, and so James, you know, is trying to encourage them, even admonish them, uh, to kind of come out of the closet and let their faith be known and live like the person they are instead of being disconnected as if you're not a Christian and live like the rest of the world. So the question then, all this bad stuff happened to them. They lost their job, their family, their home. They had, had to leave, uh, being persecuted, religious police after them. What do people usually say? Why do bad things happen to good people? You, you ever heard that? Obviously. Uh, the Barnapole. Uh, to all the churches, ask the question, if you could ask God any question, right now, if you could ask God any question, what would it be? By far, the main question that people had is, one form or another, why evil, why suffering, why do bad things happen to good people? Why didn't God prevent that, or why does he let it happen? Uh, and of course, that's, those are important questions to people because it's personal. It's personal <laughs> Bad stuff happens to all of us, and it gets personal. What did I do to deserve this? Lord, why? Uh, and so we're tempted then to you know, do something to correct the problem we have that quite often is not uh, ethical or moral or what a Christian should do. Uh, and so uh, C.S. Lewis said the problem with pain and suffering is that it requires attention. You can't ignore it. It insists on being attended to. And that's, that's one of the issues, one of the reasons it's so difficult and one of our biggest uh, problems uh, in Christianity. Now, in the world, there's a solution, there's a religion you can go to or a, you might say, a cult of Christianity 
that people adhere to that has an answer to this question. It's called the Health and Wealth Gospel. And they're on TV every Sunday, probably all during the week. And their message is, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. That's their message. They have the biggest churches in the United States. They, they do. Uh, and the answer, you say, well, then, you know, I, I'm not healthy and wealthy, so what do I need to do? And they say, no problem. Here's what you need to do. You need to have a stronger faith, and you need to send us a check. Very simple. Very simple. I think James would have laughed at their theology and sermons because, you know, when, when James wrote this, he's going to say, uh, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's not if, it's when. There's no doubt in his mind that there's going to be trials and tribulation. There's going to be trouble. This is a world of trouble. And these bodies are aging. Well, some of yours are not, but the majority are. Some of us are aging. And, uh, and so it's, it's going to happen. You're going to have the problems and the trials and the tribulations. It's just a matter of fact. It's, we live in a world of trouble, a fallen world. That's the reality. Uh, but what we do know, along with that, we, we know that God is interested in how I can change the way I respond to them. He's not so much interested in doing away with the problem. That's what we want. That's our first prayer, right? Take this away from me or heal this immediately or whatever. God's not as interested in that as he's interested in your response to the problem. Because see, God wants to see everyone here mature and grow in the faith. And God's got a way of using these adverse circumstances, the trouble, the pain, the suffering. He's got a way of using that as a tool to change your life, to bring you closer to Him and to build your faith and to grow you into mature, maturity. Okay? Uh, and so that's what James is talking about when he says consider it all joy. You know, the original golf balls were smooth. Going back to the 19th century, they just had a completely smooth golf ball. But they found out that after the golf ball got roughed up, that it actually flew a little further, and you could control it a lot better. Thus, the dimples on the golf ball that we have now have a real purpose to them, right? The rough part of the golf ball has a real purpose. And that's exactly uh, what God's doing. You know, these, all these rough patches that we go through, there's a, there's a point to it. There's a purpose in it. God is using it. He doesn't cause it to happen. That's our responsibility. But he is using it to change our life as a tool to change our life. And nothing's changed in our relationship with him. Even though you may be experiencing some terrible problem, you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he's going to use even this even this hardship, to grow you and help you mature and build your character as well and bring you closer to Him. Because bad things are not optional. Uh, they are inevitable, you see. 
and so, uh, in James, if you look there in chapter 1, James, he says in his introduction, verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's who's writing it, and he's writing it to the 12 tribes, in other words, Israel, it's kind of a code name for Israel, there were 12 tribes in Israel, uh, who are dispersed abroad. So James is the head elder in the church at Jerusalem, and he's writing to the Jews who have left Jerusalem because of the persecution. Uh, so that's who it, who's writing it, and that's who it's to, uh, and his greetings, typical uh, Greek letter. I think it's interesting, though, uh, that, that James introduces himself like that. You know, if I was thinking about how to introduce myself, how do people typically introduce themselves? In letters or in speeches or whatever? Uh, you would expect James, if, if it was me and I was writing a speech for him, to say, I am James, the head of the great church, the first church in Jerusalem. I'm the head man. James, the brother of our Lord. Jesus, I'm, I'm his brother. See? James, uh, the son of Mary. Author of seven best-selling books. <laughs> Owner of two doctorates. Pop, most popular speaker in the Christian world. I'm the bishop, the judge, and the eyewitness to the resurrection. That's what I would write. But how does he introduce himself? Just like all the other authors of the New Testament, very interesting. James, a bondservant. What's a bondservant? It's someone who's sold out to a master. Now he no longer has his will. He doesn't live for himself. He lives for the master. So James is saying, it's no longer me in charge. This is no longer about me and my life. Now I lead a life to serve Jesus purely. A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sold out completely to the Lord. And that's who's writing this. And he's very humble, as all the other New Testament authors are as well. Which is interesting to me, because... All the New Testament authors weren't always this humble. If you go back and look at them, you can see in Mark 9, Jesus interrupted his disciples, what are you talking about? And it turns out they were arguing about who among them was the greatest. I am the greatest. Anything but humility. Uh, in uh, Mark 10, uh, John said, the Apostle John said, Grant that we sit in only the places of honor in your kingdom. <laughs> and it goes on. Uh, Luke 22, a dispute. This is at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. A dispute broke, about, uh, broke up dinner about who was going to be the head guy in the kingdom. Right? Uh, this is who they were before. When Jesus told them that when he's arrested, they're going to scatter, Peter said, I'll never scatter. You don't realize who I am. I'll never deny you. You know? And then, of course, when they arrested him, he ran like the wind. Right? And then denied him three times to the servant girl uh, at his uh, trial. So, after that, in the end of the Gospel of John, 
after Jesus has been resurrected and meets with the disciples up at the Sea of Galilee and they're sitting around the campfire, uh, Peter's very meek and mild and humble after going through that. Something's changed him. Something happened to Peter. See? And God used it to humiliate him in order to bring him closer to being a servant for the Lord. Because that's what it was all about. And so Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Uh, yes, Lord, you know that I do. Then feed my little lambs. Quit thinking about being the king and being the head of the kingdom and all that stuff or where you're going to sit. I want you to serve now. Feed my lambs, the sheep, the people that I'm giving you to feed and to serve. And so they were all changed by the same way that, J that James is talking about, by persecution and trouble and adversity and pain. These guys, who we call the apostles, the authors of the New Testament, they're all their character, their attitude, everything was radically changed. And God used this adversity as one of the tools to change them. All the trouble they went through. And by the way, they all died martyrs' death and were willing. Except for uh, John, who went through uh, plenty of pain and suffering, believe me. But he died uh, at the end of the first century. But uh, they were all going through a lot of trouble and pain and suffering. And God used that in all of their cases. I don't, I don't think there's a more, uh, I hate to use the word vain, but he used it of himself. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote half the New Testament. Uh, he had, God gave him what he called a thorn in the flesh, a terrible physical pain. And Paul prayed about it. You can find this in 2 Corinthians 12. He prayed, said, take this away from me. Called it a, like a thorn in his flesh. It hurt all the time. Prayed three times, Lord, take and the Lord impressed upon him, no, I won't take it away. Why? Because this keeps you from exalting yourself, which is who you are, Paul. You're a very proud man, and you have a tendency to boast and exalt yourself. I need you humble. And when you've got a migraine headache or your lower back goes out or you need a knee replacement, there are no proud people there's only help me right and so therefore God used that to change Paul's character and to keep him healthy and so in verse 2 James chapter 1 verse 2 he's going to tell them he's going to give them four ways to consider it all joy how are you going to do this because very rare do you see somebody that something really bad happens and they go, yippee, yahoo, this is great. I've got cancer, all right. But you're, that's, you're not going to see that, right? Uh, so he's obviously talking about uh, counting all joy in a spiritual sense. Not talking about being happy about the physical ailment or the physical problem. But he's going to say, say, you've got a spiritual perspective and you can rejoice in what God's doing. Now, how do you go about doing that? And he gives you four steps here uh, in verse 3 and following. 
the first one in verse 2, James, they're, they're all imperatives, by the way. And the book of James is full of imperatives. There's 50 imperatives, in other words, commands. You do this. Uh, and so the first one here you can read in your text. Verse 2, James commands us to consider or evaluate what God's doing. Think of it that way. It's an accounting term, actually, to evaluate. And he's saying, you know, put it in your books that God is going to do something with this. Consider it. Evaluate it. Uh, you need to reevaluate your life, in a sense. Every worldly thing that happens to you has a purpose uh, and God has a way of using it providentially in your life to bring you where you want to be, to teach you things. God's involved. Consider that. Evaluate it. Secondly, in verse 3, you need to know something. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So know that all these uh, trials, all the adversity, acts as a test of your faith. You say you believe, you say you have the faith, well, it must be tested. If you go back and look at all the Bible stories in the Old Testament or the New, everybody's faith is tested. Nobody that says they believe remains untested. Every one of them had tests of their faith and were proven to be believers. I mean, the ultimate test, uh, old Abraham, that poor guy, uh, he had a, a series of tests, you know, uh, and it really peaked out in chapter 22 when he was told, uh, now you've got your son that you've been waiting all your life for, Isaac, I want you to take him out and sacrifice him. Say what? Yeah, take him out and uh, take him to Mount Moriah and, uh, you know, build a fire and uh, we're going to sacrifice him. Abraham says, okay. How can he do that? How could anybody do that to their only son? Because he believed so strongly that he trusted God even for that. And, of course, you know the story when he got him up on the altar and raised the knife, you know, the angel of the Lord said, stop, this was a test, and you passed, right? And so God uses, he tests your faith. You say believe, let's find out. And it's a great thing for you as well. You, you walk away from these trials and tribulations, and you know, well, I sure know I'm a believer now, because, you know, even after going through that horrible thing, I still believe. And it was really what I leaned on, what I depended on to get through it, was my faith. Uh, thirdly, he says uh, in verse 4, and let endurance, it's a passive thing, let something happen. Yield your life, so to speak. Have a surrendered will. Let endurance, so uh, God is going to do something in you to give you endurance, to give you perseverance. Let endurance and perseverance have its perfect result that you may be perfect or mature would be a, a better translation. You may be mature and complete in your faith, lacking in nothing. No spiritual thing you will lack. So as you emerge from these trials and tribulations and your faith has been tested and proven, 
you let God work in your life, you trust Him to do it, and He builds up your character and your strength to persevere through these things. Uh, and then, fourthly, you need to ask, pray. You, there needs to be a conversation every day between you and the Lord. Let Him know what you're thinking, what you're feeling. This is between you and Him. Communicate. You need to communicate. And you ask God for what you need. But look at what He says. He adds a condition to it. Uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask. Because, you know, we always say, what am I going to do about this? If you lack wisdom, ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, it will be given to you. doesn't say when or how long it will take, but He will give you wisdom. And, wait a minute, what kind of prayer? Verse 6, but let him ask in faith. Make it a strong prayer. Let there not be any disconnect like Israel, when they were invaded by Syria in the, in the uh, in First Kings, they're invaded by, and they pray to God for deliverance, and then they send some ambassadors to Egypt, a very evil, idolatrous Egypt, and ask them to come help them. That's double-minded. You know, I'm going to ask the Lord, but I'm going to depend on these guys, the Egyptian army. So that's what he's saying. Not that kind of prayer. Ask without doubting. Ask without double-mindedness. For, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Goes back and forth from belief to unbelief. To trusting God to do this, to taking things into your own hands. You need money? Go rob a bank. Don't trust God for it, you know. So, don't be tossed back and forth, changing your opinion. Don't be double-minded. Do it without doubting. Trust God to help you. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. The Lord knows your heart, knows what's in there, knows if you have the faith, and uh, if you don't, if you're like Israel and you send an ambassador to ask for help from Egypt instead of him, you're what? Verse 8, double-minded being a double-minded, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of, that's a Christian brother, spiritual brother, let him humble, let him be of humble circumstances, glory in his high position. So if you're broke and poor, praise the Lord. Why? Because you're saved. Because Jesus saved you. And because God is still working in your life. And because you know the end from the beginning. You know how this is going to end. Right? So praise God, even in your brokenness. What about the rich guy? What does he do? Verse 10. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation. So if you're rich, humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, you have blessed me beyond my wildest dreams. You've given this to me. Now, Lord, give me wisdom on how to use it for your glory. You see? So whether you're rich or you're poor, you approach God in a very humble way, praising Him and thanking Him for everything. Uh, that's the considerate all joy 
and you encounter various trials, whichever they are, right? For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So just like all this greenery fades away in the winter, you're not going to be wealthy after you pass away. You know, there's no pockets in the shrouds. You can't take it with you. That's what he's saying there in verse 11. So it's that your great riches are just very temporary. But blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. God loves that. It proves your faith. It changes your character. It brings you closer to him. Once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. God will reward you for it. The crown of life is the rewards from God in heaven, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, just a, a, a few reasons. We asked the deal, uh, what a, why do bad things happen? I think we've got a list of, uh, well, first of all, some of the quotes from some famous men. There's no education like adversity. We know that to be true. Uh, Seneca said, difficulties strengthen the mind as labor does the body. Victor Hugo, a diversity makes men, but prosperity makes monsters. The important thing about a problem is not its solution, but the strength we gain in finding the solution. Isn't that the truth? That's my favorite one. And C.S. Lewis has got the most convicting one. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Isn't that the truth? That's convicting. The world is not interested in the storms you encounter, but only did you bring in the ship. Did you persevere through the storm? Exactly. Uh, and then you've got a list of stuff, don't you? Yeah. So why? Why does God allow it? Why didn't he prevent it? Why do bad things happen? A, to test your faith, just like he said, reveals it, proves it. Uh, it humbles us. That's something, humility is something we all need desperately. We, we see uh, pride and vanity in others, but hardly ever see it in ourselves. We all need more humility. And the thing about humility is you can't learn it out of a book. It only comes from experience. It comes from all those scars you have on you. Right? Third, to remove our dependence on the world. We get caught up in the world. We think all this, this is all there is. But we learn through the difficulties that this ain't it. You know, materialism, worries of the world, pursuit of pleasure can be our greatest threat of alienating us from God. It brings us to the Lord. So, uh, it's also to develop eternal hope. What we hope for should be more, direct, more directed toward heavenly things than temporal it reveals our true love. You know, do you really love the Lord or do you love the stuff in the world the most? It teaches us to value God's blessings when we get them, to develop strength for ministry. You know, these guys, as I said before, the apostles were not ready to take over and minister to the world. The Great Commission, they weren't ready for it. But God made them ready. 
through a series of events. Uh, to better help and give comfort to others who are going through trials, you know, when you find somebody who's going through something really difficult, it's best to let them talk to somebody who's already been through the exact same thing and emerged on the other side. It really uh, is true. Uh, let me close with this. It's a story, a true story about, you may have read her book, Joni Erickson Tada. Uh, she was a, a lady uh, who, who enjoyed all outside activities, horseback riding, swimming, biking, and tennis. But in 1967, she jumped into Chesapeake Bay, uh, and it was shallower than she thought. She hit her head on a rock. She was severely injured. Uh, she was paralyzed. She became a quadriplegic. And through hard work, she was able to paint with her teeth. And through voice recognition software, she's written 40 Christian books that sold well. And in one of them, she has this great quote about her wheelchair. She says, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven. I know that's not biblical, but if it were, I would take it. I would have my wheelchair up in heaven when God gives me my brand new body, my resurrection body. And then I will turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, the weaker I was in that wheelchair, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, Jesus, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you, Jesus, for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, Jesus, I will say with a grin on my face, you can send that wheelchair to hell. Yeah. <laughs> Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word, through the testimony of James, and I pray, Lord, we would have a new outlook, a new perspective when trouble comes our way, and we would try to uh, uh, know and consider and yield and then pray to you about it, Lord, uh, and be able to praise you and thank you in all circumstances. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Ha, 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 ha.